We ask for us, O oh Lord, that as we look at your word, that some of us here are, are tired, some are frustrated, some are angry, some are discouraged and depressed, some are proud and arrogant, some of us are confused, O oh Lord, some of us are fearful. We pray that you would still our hearts, that you would quieten our minds, that you would refresh us in every way that uh, as we have been singing your praise, that we would learn more of the one whose praise we sing, and that our hearts would go out of this place thrilled and filled with the love of Jesus Christ. Lord, this world is empty, empty, and so desperately needs to hear about Jesus. Lord, we ask that we ourselves would be people who are able to communicate and tell because it is overflowing out of the abundance of the heart, the mouth speaks. So we ask that you would speak to our hearts, through our minds, as we look at your word in your name. Amen. Let's turn to Mark's gospel, the passage that we read um, from verse 27 through to verse 33. Um, we will look next Sunday evening at verses 34 to the end, but this is a very, very significant moment in the history of the church, and I want us uh, in, here in this part of Scripture, and I want us just to take our time and, and <clears throat> look at this a, a bit anyway. This is really a verse which is about how to become a Christian. And it's really confusing for lots of people about how to become a Christian. And often even people who are brought up in a Christian home, they think there's a certain formula and so on. It's also about how to listen to Jesus and how to grow as a Christian. So I think, well, I know that it's applicable to everyone here, so please do listen to what Christ has to say to us through His Word. There is a great deal of confusion about how to become a Christian. As I mentioned this morning, I have a great deal of admiration for what the, the Pope has been saying whilst he's been here. And having read his book on Jesus of Nazareth, I'm not too convinced that he wouldn't ag I agree with this. That sentence just made completely no grammatical sense whatsoever. <laughs> so you can work out what I meant by it. There's no... That's well, or rubbish, sorry. <laughs> but what I meant was that I think if the Pope was here, um, I would shake his hand, and I hope that he would agree with what I'm just about to say. At least I hope he would. Because a lot of my friends in the Catholic Church and in lots of other churches misunderstand this about how to become a Christian. You do not become a Christian by being baptized. You do not become a Christian by taking communion. You do not become a Christian by going to church. Uh, I still think, I heard this as a child, I still think this is very valid, that you do not become a Christian by going to church in the same way as you do not become a car by going to the garage. It's, uh, I, I think people need to grasp that. You do not become a Christian by saying, I am a Christian. You do not become a Christian by turning religious. None of these things. It actually is not rocket science. Why do we make the most simple things complicated? A Christian is somebody who follows Jesus Christ. 
And therefore, it becomes extremely important, this question in verse 27, who do people say I am? It becomes extremely important that we know who Jesus is. So, that's what we're going to to look at, this whole idea of show me Jesus. Let me just set the background here of where it's taking place. It's in the villages around Caesarea Philippi, very beautiful place. Jesus went there because he wanted some peace and quiet to teach his disciples. It was a really significant place for Jesus to give this teaching. He's teaching his disciples. And I'll tell you why. It used to be called Banias, and that meant the center for the worship of Baal. There was a cave nearby here where, uh, which was said to be the birthplace of the Greek god Pan. From a nearby hillside was the source of the Jordan. There was a temple in the area at that time built to Caesar as a god. In other words, this teaching that Jesus was giving took place in the midst of religious pluralism, Greek gods, the essence, the start of the River Jordan for the Jews, the Romans having Caesar as a god, and Jesus is there and he's teaching people, teaching his disciples. Teaching takes place in many different situations, not just a classroom nor a formal worship setting. And we'll say it again and we'll keep saying it and we'll keep repeating it until we get it and grasp it. We need to keep teaching and to keep being taught. I, I hope this doesn't sound arrogant, but I study the Bible probably more than any of you. The only reason is that's my job. And I have to say this, I keep learning. There isn't a single week goes by where I study the Bible and go, yeah, I knew all that already. It's, it's just absolutely amazing to me how much stuff there is and how relevant it is, how it speaks to the world around us. It speaks to me. It's, it's God's Word to us today. And we do need more teaching and, and sharing and fellowship with one another. That's the great thing about the um, fellowship groups and uh, other things like that where we, we teach one another from God's Word and we learn together from God's Word. Now, when Jesus teaches here, this is a very different kind of teaching. Normally, if you were a, a teacher, a Jewish teacher, a rabbi, people would come to you and ask you questions. But here Jesus reverses that technique, and he says to the disciples, who do people say I am? I think that this is the key question. It's really, really important for them to grasp the identity of who Jesus Christ is. It's a crisis point for Jesus. He's reaching the end. He knows he's going towards Jerusalem. He knows, at this point, he knows that he is going to be crucified. It was absolutely essential that his disciples would know who he is and to understand what he did. These are the disciples of Jesus. Now, I want to say that it is absolutely essential that we who profess to be Christians understand who Jesus is and understand what he has done, because only then will we be able to articulate it to other people. Now, please don't assume that because people come to church or because they say they're evangelical Christians or they belong to the CU or whatever, that they necessarily know who Jesus is. 
in my long time in St. Peter's, uh, 18 years, I've, I've met some extraordinary people who just, I, I, I wonder sometimes we have a filter in our minds and how we filter out things we don't want to hear and we let things pass that we, we do want to hear. I remember one lady coming to the church and uh, saying to me, David, I have one or two problems with the Bible. And I said, okay. And I was expecting the usual stuff of I'm struggling with the Old Testament and it's Jesus I like and so on. And she said, I like all the Old Testament stuff. She said, I just can't handle Jesus. It just really upsets me. And I would like church without Jesus. She actually said that. And, but she also wanted to lead a Bible study. And I was, no, church without Jesus, that, that was quite remarkable. But I remember uh, another student in the Christian Union a few years ago saying to me just very simply, yes, I worship Jesus Christ, and I know that he's God in some way or other, but I don't think it really matters, as long as you worship him. And I thought, oh, we haven't got it. And I think that because of the pluralism in our culture, because of our misunderstandings and so on, then we, we do end up, as, we, as I said this morning, with people saying, well, if that's what you feel, that's fine, and that's what you feel, and that's fine, and that's what you feel, that's fine. When we have our, our fellowship groups and so on, they're not kind of like shared feeling sessions. Of course, she, feelings come into it. But we're looking to say, what is this about Jesus? How do we relate to Jesus? How does this connect with Jesus? So in this, we notice simply that was, by the way, sorry, that was all introduction. Um, there are many opinions about Jesus Christ. Now, notice very important distinction here. There are not many Christs. There is one Christ, but there are many opinions about Christ. It is not what we think about Jesus Christ that makes Christ Christ. It is who Jesus is. Now, what we think is important because it affects us but it doesn't change him. So someone might say, I don't really believe in Jesus. Well, I'm sorry, your disbelieving doesn't make him go away. Someone might say, well, my Jesus is like this. That doesn't make Jesus your Jesus. You don't choose and pick in terms of Jesus Christ. I think it's very important for us to realize there is a Jesus no matter who we think he is. And our thinking and our understanding will always in this life be to some extent distorted and confused. And we need to ask to be given light. So when they ask, they answer the question, they say, some people say you're John the Baptist brought back to life. Some people say you're Elijah because the Jews believed there would be great disasters and then Elijah would come who would prepare the way for the Messiah based on Malachi 4 verse 5. See, I will send you the prophet Elijah before that great and dreadful day of the Lord comes. Other people say you are one of the prophets, someone in the line of the prophets, not a resurrected prophet, but there had been about 400 years silence since Malachi to, until Jesus. And they were saying, ah, the prophets have started again. There were also very many different vague ideas about Jesus. And in our culture, that's still the same. So if you're a Christian and you're trying to tell someone how to become a Christian and you say you've got to give your life to Jesus, you have to be very careful about saying that because 
What Jesus are you talking about? It's very interesting. When the, the, I find it really, really hard to do evangelism when there are a lot of Christians present. Uh, not necessarily always, but... And, I, and I'll tell you why. Because Christians have a very fixed idea, often in the tradition that they are brought up in, what evangelism is. And in order to check whether you're sound, they want you to tick certain boxes, that you will mention certain words, that you will have a certain technique, and so on. I remember doing an evangelistic meeting in Sterling, and a man, a, a Christian there, got up and walked out because he was so angry, because there'd be no hymns, there'd be no prayer, and as far as he was concerned, it wasn't a gospel presentation with an altar call at the end. But it wasn't intended to be. The place was pretty full. There were 200 people there, more than half of whom were not Christians. I was explaining why other views, secularism and so on, were not the answer. I was trying to explain about how our society was uh, anti-Christian, and then people were asking questions, and one man stood up and said, okay, you've basically destroyed my faith in atheism, but he says, what do you actually believe? And I told him about Jesus and told him what the Word of God says and so on. But this Christian was just really, really upset because I hadn't taken a passage, I hadn't quoted chapter and verse, I hadn't done the, you know, you are a sinner, you must come to Jesus, this is how you come to Jesus, which is one way of presenting the gospel, but it's not the only way of presenting the gospel. And one of the things that we have to do in presenting the gospel is when we ask people to believe in Jesus Christ, we really have to tell them about Christ. They don't know. They have no idea who Jesus is. The Christian is able to say, I know whom I have believed. 2 Timothy 1 verse 12, and I still like the old King James version of that as well. That's certainty. I know whom I have believed. But what we have to do is we have to pass on that we are not talking about opinions, we are talking about who Jesus really and actually is. What did Christ say? He said, if I am lifted up, I'll be, I will draw all men to, you, to me. I do think that that is talking about the cross, but I also think that it's talking about more than that because it's referring to the, the scene in um, Exodus where the snake was lifted up, and if people looked to the snake, uh, they were saved. I think that we need people to see, not great religious leaders, not our churches and so on, but we need people to see who Jesus Christ is. And our evangelism is not telling people primarily about our experience, so that may come into it. It's not telling people primarily about the benefits of being a Christian, though that will come into it. It's just telling people about Jesus so that they will be drawn to Him. Secondly, there's a good confession that you make. There's many opinions. There's a good confession. You are the Christ, says Peter. It's a great answer. Why? The Christ, the Messiah in both Greek and Hebrew, just simply means the anointed one, the one that God was to send. Mark, at the beginning of his gospel, tells us that this is about Christ. It carries the idea of the fulfillment of the Old Testament prophecies. The Christ is prophet, priest, and king. The people needed a prophet to tell them what God wanted, a priest to sacrifice for them and bring them to God, and a king to protect and rule them. Jesus would fulfill all three roles. Now, again, I want to issue a, a, 
a cautionary note here. Having said what I said this morning and what I would say again about the Pope, there is a danger that many Christians will look and say, ah, right, here's a man who's speaking clearly. So here's a man who'll tell us what God wants. Here's a priest who'll sacrifice for us. And here's a king who'll protect and rule us. When any human being has tried to take on those roles, it's been disaster. And it does become blasphemous. I'm not a priest because Jesus is the one who sacrifices, not me. I'm not a prophet in the sense of coming and telling you what God's Word is, independent of the Word of God, because God speaks through His Word. And I'm certainly not a king to protect and rule you in that sense. Now, there's a, a if you like, a, a kind of sub-letting out of that, where, where in the church we offer sacrifice of praise, as priests do, where we proclaim the Word of God, and where in the church we do have leadership. But everything is always subordinate to Jesus Christ. The idea of having of Christ having a representative on earth is wrong. And I'll tell you why, because it's saying that Christ is in heaven. He needs one of us, or maybe lots of us, down here on earth because He's not present. But Jesus promised that the Holy Spirit would be present. And the good confession is always, you are the Christ. It's again back to Jesus. Now, it's an extraordinary confession here, by the way, because Jesus was poor, not honored, he was weak, not powerful, in the, in the sense that most people understood the Messiah. He just didn't have the appearance of what people expected in a Messiah. I think we need such bold confession. We're standing up for Jesus, and we're boldly acknowledging Jesus. We have much more information that, than Peter had. Romans chapter 10 and verse 9 says this, if you confess with your mouth Jesus is Lord and believe in your heart that God raised Him from the dead, you will be saved. For it is with your heart that you believe and are justified. It is with your mouth that you confess and are saved. We are confessing the Lordship of Jesus Christ. And that's why I'm very uncomfortable with the idea of saying, I follow this person, or I follow that person, or I'm a Presbyterian, or I'm a Baptist, or I'm a Catholic, or I'm a Charismatic, or whatever. By definition, the Christian should be saying, I follow Jesus. I am a Christian. The fact that that word has been demeaned and undermined and is misunderstood shouldn't stop us using it. I follow Christ. The great confession is simply Jesus is Lord. No matter what other people say, I'm acknowledging Jesus Christ as Lord of the whole earth, Lord of the whole universe, Lord of my life. Then in verse 31, we go on to look at the, the great work of Jesus. In order to be saved, you need a good grasp of who Jesus is, but also what He does. Now, that's why in verse 30, you get that strange verse, Jesus warned them not to tell anyone about Him. Because at that point, Jesus hadn't yet died. His work had not yet been done. 
He didn't want the crowds to know he was the Messiah because they, had mis- they would misunderstand what that work was. And Jesus indicates what the work is. The Son of Man must suffer. It was a messianic title. It was Jesus' favorite title for himself. Christ must suffer. Christ must be killed. Christ must rise again. Does this mean that he's saying, I have to die an exemplary death to show people how to die? No. He's going much, much deeper. And the must is simply this. Without his death, there is no forgiveness. Without forgiveness, there is no salvation. We are all lost, no matter what our background, religion, social class, and so on. It was absolutely essential that the Christ would suffer and die. In fact, Jesus came into this world to do precisely that. Um, If you've got a Bible, go to Acts chapter 2, verse 22, and you'll see how Peter has come to understand this. At this point, he didn't understand it. But now he understands and he tells people. Acts 2, verse 22. Men of Israel, listen to this. Jesus of Nazareth was a man accredited by God to you by miracles, wonders, and signs which God did among you through him, as you yourself know. This man was handed over to you by God's set purpose and foreknowledge, and you, with the help of wicked men, put him to death by nailing him to the cross. But God raised him from the dead, freeing him from the agony of death, because it was impossible for death to keep its hold on him. And what Peter is telling the people is, you saw Jesus, you had the testimony of the miracles, yet you killed him, yet that was God's purpose and plan all along. Now, all that this is, and I'm, I'm sure that most of you know this, but you, you, you must keep repeating this and, and grasping it, because I find that the more I go on, these great truths of the person and the work of Christ are more and more essential in my daily life. In other words, they are not things that I hear in church, and then I walk away and on a Monday morning say, okay, that's it. It's out of here. No, These are the central truths of the Bible, the person of Christ and the nature and necessity of the atonement. It's about our whole lives. There is nothing more important for us to know and us to grasp. And that's why the fourth thing is so difficult, or I think so realistic in the Bible, because look at what Peter does. Jesus speaks plainly, verse 32, and Peter takes him aside and rebukes him. Jesus, Peter says to Jesus, you're the Messiah, but you've got it wrong. It's an extraordinary, I mean, I love the reality of the Bible, because what a religious person would do, what a normal Christian would do nowadays, if you heard a message from Jesus like that, you'd think, yeah, right, but I'm not going to say anything, because he's more important. But Peter is just, Peter, he's just impetuous. And he said, you're the Messiah, and then he just takes him aside and says, you've got it wrong. Now, you understand why? He was concerned about Jesus. He accepted the idea of suffering, probably. Um, But he could not believe that it would be Israel's leaders who would cause Israel's Messiah to suffer. Now, actually, remember Jesus was human. As well as being the Son of God, 
And I think that this really hit, Peter, hit Jesus badly. He has just poured out his heart and told them what's going to happen. He's taken them apart into a, you know, he's taken them into a, an area where he can be with them, where he can teach them, where he can tell them what's going to happen because he's going to go and suffer. And the agony that Jesus felt in this is reflected in the Garden of Gethsemane. And he, he wants his friends, he wants his disciples to be with him, to help him, and to support him. And he's just told them the most significant thing, the reason that he's come to die, and the one who's identified him as the Messiah immediately turns around and says, no, you're not going to do this. And I think that really, really got to Jesus. And that's why when he in turn rebukes Peter, he says to him incredibly strong words, you get behind me, Satan. The devil was using Peter, not coming into him and possessing him, but using his human misunderstanding and using his weakness. And here's the significant thing. If you are a Christian, as I am, the devil can use us as well. Ignorance, self-conceit, and good intentions can be a fatal combination. It is a very small step from making the good confession to being a stumbling block, from being commended by Christ to being used by the devil. And that's why I would urge you to be very cautious before you go and rebuke another Christian, unless you are absolutely sure and certain that what they have said or what they have done, which you are rebuking them for, is actually the case. Sometimes, in fact, I'll, I would actually say all the time, the most devastating hurt and criticism comes from those who are on your side. I'm not talking about what Proverbs calls the wounds of a friend are faithful, and we need friends who have the heart and the courage and the boldness to tell us things that they know will hurt us. We need that. But what we don't need in the Christian church are people who think that they are being spiritual and that they're acting on Christian motives and so on, and yet put a stumbling block in the way of the people of God and in the way of Christ's work. So for us, you see, we really need to be more humble. We need to be more gracious to those who fall. Our brother or sister could be wrong, but they could be backslidden like Peter. I mean, you know the, the whole argument about Peter being the Pope and all that kind of stuff. Well, that's fine. Call Peter the Pope if you want. The Pope got it wrong. He, he got it really wrong. He got accused of being Satan. Galatians 6.1, brothers, if someone is caught in a sin, you are spiritual, should restore him gently, but watch yourselves or you also may be tempted. Some of us want to restore and correct and help our brother and sister but the spirit in which we do it is not gently. It's the wrong way. We need to be very careful. We ourselves, humility is our greatest need. I, I'm, I was going to say I'm happy. I'm not happy to confess. Um, but I know that uh, I come across as being an arrogant person because I am an arrogant person. 
in lots of ways. Um, you're arrogant too. You know, those of you who say that you're humble, you're just pretending. Um, it's not real. We're all, to some extent, we're all arrogant in that sense. We all need to recognize that. And true humility is not groveling. True humility is just saying, actually, I don't understand this. And true humility in Peter would have been, wait a minute, Jesus is, he, he's praised me for recognizing that he's the Messiah. He's now said he's going to die. How, I, I don't get it. That doesn't make sense. And instead of fitting the message of Jesus into the way that he thought, what he should have done is said, okay, I don't get this. And he should have had the humility to recognize he didn't get it. It really helps you a lot as a Christian if you don't have to fix everything and understand everything and have everything sorted out. Sometimes it's all right just to trust Jesus and say, Lord, I don't get this. I just don't get it, but. Because otherwise, you end up being a stumbling block. You know, it's, it's so sad what we've, we've heard about Louise's brother. A young and immature Christian might want to go and say, look, I'm going to comfort you by telling you A, B, C, D, E, truths. And what would you do? You wouldn't bring comfort. Sometimes we, we weep with those who weep. Sometimes we, we don't understand why different things happen. But because we trust Jesus, we know that he does. So in that sense, we have to look more to Christ. Look what he says. He says to Peter, you do not have in mind the things of God, but the things of men. Peter didn't have in mind the things of the devil, but he didn't have in mind the things of Christ. He had the things of men. We need to try and understand from God's perspective. And that will help us enormously. It really will help us. I think a lot of our discouragement and a lot of our depression and a lot of our anger and a lot of our criticism comes not through because we have in mind the things of God, but because we have in mind the things of men. We are judging by the wrong standard. We are assessing by the wrong standard. And, and so we have to look to Christ. When we were singing the deep, deep love of Jesus, that's it's not just a lovely tune. That, for me, the words of that song are completely overwhelming. They, they, they are, they're, they're just absolutely stunning. If you walk out of here and you think, Jesus loves me, it's not just a kid's song. You know the story of the great theologian Karl Barth, who wrote these Barth's Dogmatics, which these huge number of books that I think if anyone's ever read them, I'm, I'm really questioning if they're telling me the truth. But they, 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 that's the ultimate in theological geekdom, is to read all of Bart's dogmatics. And he, he's, he's pretty unsound in lots of things anyway, so don't bother. But you could do that. But he went to the United States, and he was being interviewed by some journalists. And they said to him, how would you sum up your faith? And they were expecting this really, really profound answer, and they got it. He said, Jesus loves me, this I know, because the Bible tells me so. That's it. So I think it's the best thing Bart ever said, actually. Jesus loves me, this I know, because the Bible tells me so. You do not have in mind the things of God, 
but the things of men. The things of men will come in. The things of men will hurt us. The things of men will attack us. The things of men will cause us to be used by the devil. And they're going to be there, and we need them to be there, and that's what we are. But in our mind and in our heart, the purpose should be, what, is, what does Jesus want? What would Jesus do? It's not just a, a slogan on an armband. But is this for the glory of Christ? Is this for the good of Christ? Is this about the beauty of Christ? We're going to sing in a moment um, the splendor of the King, speaking, of course, about Jesus and how great is our God. I, sometimes you come out of church and you say, ah, oh, that was rubbish. And sometimes you come out of church and you go, ah, oh, that was brilliant. And sometimes you're in part of a church and you think, we're brilliant. And that's a nice feeling. But you've really got it and you've really grasped it. If when you are here and when you leave here, what's in your heart and your mind is how great is our God. And if you think that being told yet again that Jesus is the Messiah and that Jesus came to die and that Jesus loves us, that's just run-of-the-mill stuff. It's not what thrills your soul. Then you are in a very spiritually backslidden state. There's an old, old hymn. All that thrills my soul is Jesus. He is everything to me. Let's pray. Lord, we pray that you would help us to be like Peter in recognizing you as the Messiah, as the anointed one. We pray also that you would help us when we are like Peter and we don't have in mind your things and we get in the way of your work. Lord, we, we love you, and we do not want to be used in that way. So renew our minds and fill our hearts with the love of Christ. We confess that we are selfish. We confess that we are self-obsessed. We confess that we, we so easily get overwhelmed when we stand on our own. But help us to see we're not standing on our own. We are in your hands. And how, having died for us, will you not also grant us all things? Lord, I pray for anyone here who doesn't know you. Oh, let them see your beauty and let them desire you and commit themselves to you. And I pray for those of us who do. We are so like Peter. We are so impetuous. We are so up and down. Lord, we just ask, and we thank you that you answer this prayer. We thank you for all you have granted to it. We just ask that we would see you, that our eyes would be opened. Open the eyes of our hearts that we may see Jesus. We thank you, Lord, that we're able to come here on a Sunday morning and a Sunday evening and with all the cares of the world and all the other things, that it's not about religion and it's not about earning merit and it's not about just doing something good, we come because we want to meet with you and we want to share with your people and we want to see you. And we thank you for so many times that you've answered that prayer, yes, because everything is yes in you. 
And so for your own people who are here, for those who are beaten up and bruised and wounded and discouraged and hurt and frustrated and backslidden and so many different things, Lord, all of us, our greatest need is to see you. And may it be that as we, as we finish this evening, that our hearts would be filled with Christ. For we ask it in your name. Amen.